Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus as we are in now 2022 in the same series. And we're not going to church, we are the church. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11, the message today will be entitled, Another Kind of Priest, Another Kind of Priest. And we'll go to Hebrews 7. 11 and 12 and read that first if then completion was reached that could also be called perfection it's probably the key concept in all of Hebrews completion or perfection if then completion was reached through the Levitical priesthood parentheses for in connection with it the people receive the law why was there still a need for another priest to arise? Notice the resurrection implication. Why was there still a need for another priest to arise? We might consider about eight things about that in a, shortly. Prefigured in Melchizedek, and who is not said to be in the order of Aaron. For when there's a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law which makes them priests. This introduces a whole other concept and subject in Hebrews. And so, Father, we pray that you'll open the eyes of our heart, that we may behold wonderful things out of your word, and we know that the sum total of all those things is your Son. May we see Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. First, in this passage, the teaching shepherd who wrote Hebrews establishes a link between the Levitical priesthood and the law of Moses. And he'd already shown the superiority of Jesus over Moses in the early chapters. Then the PT asks the rhetorical question and Alluding to Psalm 110.4, Septuagint 109.4 is always understood. Quote, if the completion or the proposed goal of God, let's call it that, the proposed goal of God was reached through the Levitical priesthood, then why? And this is a rhetorical question. Because in the unfulfilled condition, it is, should be translated, if completion was reached through the Levitical priesthood and it wasn't, but if it was, why was there the need for another priest to arise after a different order? Not of the order of Aaron. One to arise as prefigured in Melchizedek. So here's the question. If the completion or the proposed goal of God was reached through the Levitical priesthood, then why, and listen carefully to this, why according to the Spirit-inspired, the Holy Spirit-inspired word, the inspired writing of David by whom the Holy Spirit spoke. One of the last words David said, almost on his deathbed in 2 Samuel 23, 2, the Spirit of the Lord was on my tongue. So why, according to the later inspired writing of David, later than the Levitical law, 
by whom the Holy Spirit spoke, was there the need for another priest not said to be of the order of Aaron to arise, prefigured in Melchizedek. Now let's think about this for a moment. First, consider that David rightly said at the close of his days on earth, the Spirit of the Lord spoke through me, and his word was on my tongue. The Psalms, therefore, that were composed by David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, as he's called, include 110 of the Psalms. They were inspired, breathed out by the same Holy Spirit that breathed out Hebrews, the same Holy Spirit that PT, the PT speaks of when he says in Hebrews 3.7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit is saying, Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. That's good daily advice for every day, including every day of 2022. We're dealing here with the God-breathed scriptures in 1 Timothy 3.16. Make that 2 Timothy 3.16, which the writer of Hebrews clearly knows are the inspired word of God. Second that there is understood to be a completion, a teleosis as the Greek has it. In, again, that's probably the key conceptual idea in Hebrews. T-E-L-E-I-Omega-O-S-I-S. Teleosis, completion or perfection. Both of these work, but completion might be just edging out perfection. Second, that there is understood then to be a completion, a teleosis to be reached in God's plan for Israel is apparent. God has promised and will not break his word that he will do all of his intention as articulated in a passage which is about to get some serious attention in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through 12, and again in Hebrews 10, 16 to 17. That passage is namely Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, which is found in the Septuagint of Jeremiah 38, 31 to 34. Reduced to his essence, that passage comes down to God saying of Israel, I will be their God and they will be my people. Jeremiah 31, 33. Now, here... The author proposes, and I'm quoting here from De Silva, the author proposes here that God's ultimate goal for God's people was not a static situation in which the majority were kept at a safe distance from God's holy dwelling, but a dynamic process by which they would be brought into God's dwelling forever, such that God would indeed dwell in their midst. And then De Silva Quotes Ezekiel 37:27, Zechariah 2:11, 2 Corinthians 6:16b, 6, Revelation, and this is the most important one in my consideration now, Revelation 21:3 to 4, and 22:3b to 4. Third, what we discover in a careful study of the New Testament is that this declaration of God's is ultimately not made only with regard to Israel and Judah's majority, as De Silva puts it, 
but with regard to humanity in general. When God finally says in Revelation 21, 3 and 22, 3 and 4, I will be their people and they will be my God. He's not talking just to Israel or even to Israel and Judah in the United States. He is talking about all of humanity over the course of all time. That's not a majority of humanity. That's an extreme generality called universality. So again, what we discover in a careful study of the New Testament is that this declaration of God's is ultimately not made with regard to Israel and Judah's majority, but with regard to humanity in general. We're a little over our skis here because we're anticipating Hebrews 8 by saying this so early, but consider that this very statement of God is alluded to in a context of extreme generality and not just majority. And it's in connection with the revelation or revelation 21:5, the new creation of all things i'm speaking once again of revelation 21:3, which during our course of studying rev the book we did a translation that goes like this and i heard a greatly amplified voice saying look god's home is with humankind he doesn't say with israel he doesn't say with Israel and Judah. He doesn't say with Christians. He doesn't say with the church. He says with mankind, humankind, and he will live with them. They will be his people and God in person will be with them and be their God. Humankind in general, humankind in toto, as the Latin would put it, will be God's people and he will be with them all in person in an immediate presence with them and be their God. This squares with something that we're going to come up with and use as a term in our next message. Our next message incidentally will be a Martin Luther King Day special message, third special message in recent, our recent history as a ministry. We had a special Christmas and we had a special New Year's 22 message. We'll have a special Martin Luther King Day message, which is, would be January 17th of this year, that will be for January 16th on our schedule. Humankind in general, being God's people, and God being with all of them in person, squares with the term micro-apocalypse. That's the term we're going to use as we do a special message in honor of Dr. King's special day. The micro-apocalypse of 1 Corinthians 15, 24, which ends with God being all in all, quote, at the extreme bound of history. We'll be reflecting on this extreme bound of history with regard to Jesus' royal priesthood in the not too distant future. The reason for this is, does Jesus Christ's kingdom end when he submits the kingdom over which he is currently ruling to God the Father, that the Father may be all in all? When Jesus prays, Father, let your kingdom come. Is there a distinction between the Father's eternal kingdom 
and the son's kingdom. Does the son's kingdom come to an end as it is enveloped by the father's kingdom? That's a question. You say, well, no, not at all. Well, wait a minute. Let's, we're going to deal with that question down the road. Can't answer it too quickly because there's good material on both sides of that question. Both of which give great glory and honor to our Lord Jesus Christ, by the way. So we're going to be reflecting on this term, the extreme bound of history, with regard to Jesus' royal priesthood in the not-too-distant future. But right now, it's, good, it's a good thing. It's such a good thing, to use the language of Hebrews. It is such a good thing that we came to Hebrews via revelation. We were given interpretive keys that we had no idea about when studying Revelation. And through Romans, for that matter, maybe even more so through Romans. For again, by coming to Hebrews through Revelation, through Romans, through Better Call Paul, through the mystery doctrine, through doing and living theology, we were being handed some interpretive keys by the Lord that we had no idea about while we were doing these. For in Romans, for example, we learn that all Israel will be saved, Romans 11:26, but they will be saved within the context of God showing saving mercy to all of humanity, Jews and non-Jews, Romans 11:32, which I now post as the climactic verse of Romans. It used to be Romans 8. 38 and 39 in my mind, but now it's Romans 11:32, where the dead center of Romans is Romans 8:31, God for us, and God handing his son over for us all. Now Israel should never be despised. There's never a reason, a sane reason for anti-Semitism never a reason for anti-Jewish sentiment or anti-Israeli sentiment. And it's a poison and a toxin and a cancer when it's found in the government and in government officials of a nation. And it will lead to the downfall of our nation quicker than almost anything else. And so we have to beware of these things. It shouldn't be in our heart. It shouldn't be in our mind. It shouldn't be in our speech ever. Israel should never be despised, nor their crucial place in God's plan even slightly diminished. For it was through Israel, and ultimately through Israel's Messiah, for it is out from Israel that Messiah came, as Romans 9, 4 and 5 says, that salvation came to the Gentiles. And if some of us happen to be Gentile Christians, we ought always remember that it is Israel's Messiah at the root, the root that's beneath us, and that salvation is of the Jews through the Jewish Messiah. Salvation, though of the Lord from beginning to end, is from the Jews. I'll say that again. Salvation, though of the Lord, Psalm 3.8, is from the Jews. Jesus himself said that. Salvation is from, ek, from the Jews. John 4.22. Jesus himself said that. 
The Messiah of Israel is the Savior of the world. John 4.42. That's the reason why neither Paul nor... So thank God we came to Hebrews through John's gospel also. Jesus himself said that the Messiah of Israel is the Savior of the world. That's the reason why neither Paul nor John nor the PT who wrote Hebrews would ever agree with that which is called replacement theology in our time. A doctrine that teaches that Israel was essentially rejected by God and replaced by a Gentile church or by a church consisting of a mixture of Gentiles and, note this phrase, completed Jews. Israel has neither been replaced nor rejected, nor will Israel ever be replaced or rejected. You ought to read Romans 11 and find out what that means, because all 36 verses of that passage have to do with the answer to the question, has God rejected his people Israel? And the answer is hell no. Back to the teaching shepherd's reasoning as he continues to be guided by the same Holy Spirit who spoke by David in Psalm 110. And in fact, all of the Davidic Psalms. Fourth, therefore, we all know that the scripture cannot be broken. John 10.35 from the lips of Jesus. And that means that it cannot and does not contradict itself. Therefore, what stands written in the law, and by the law I mean the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Bible, what's written in the law does not contradict what stands written in the prophets or in the Psalms. In the law, there is a prescription and an authorization for Levitical priests, as well as detailed instructions for the priest and archpriest of that order and instructions for worship through the priesthood. It's found especially in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Notice I didn't say Genesis, but Genesis is where we find Melchizedek, who predates and preexists that priesthood, as well as prefigures a priest that would arise beyond that priesthood. There's a double usage for the word law in the scriptures, or namas. In fact, there's many uses of the term namas. It can mean principle or operative principle or power. It can mean the first five books of the Bible, or it can mean the law that came through Moses. And so there is a double usage, at least for the law, in the scriptures. Law means the first five books of the Bible, but it also means the law that came through Moses for the people of Israel, a law which includes the prescriptions and regulations for priests and archpriests of the order of Levi. With the change of the priesthood after the order of Levi, there's a change of the law and a change of covenant. Therefore, this is intimating the new covenant in which all will come to know me, says the Lord. And the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth. Jeremiah 31, 34, Habakkuk 2, 14. Fifth observation, then, the Davidic Psalm 110, 
109 in the Septuagint, speaks of the rise of another priest. The word here is heteron. And heteron, there's two words for another in the Greek. There's heteron, make that a hard breathing, heteron, and there's alon. Alon means another of the same kind. Heteron means another of a different kind. This word heteron is used in Hebrews 7.11. Heteron. And so this psalm also in Psalm 110 speaks of, according to Hebrews 7.11, the need for another priest to arise. The word selected by the Holy Spirit for another, therefore, in Hebrews 7.11 is Heteron, H-E-T-E-R-O-N in transliteration, which means different or another kind, or another of a different kind. In other words, if, it was, if the Levitical priesthood was all that, then why later than the Pentateuch in the Psalms did David under the Holy Spirit write of another priest arising prefigured in a man who was a priest before Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were written, in which the prescription for the Levitical priesthood was laid out. Sixth, therefore, we have to ask, does this call for another kind of priest after the Levitical priesthood? Does this contradict the Levitical priesthood that was instituted in the law and in accordance with the Sinaitic covenant. Sinaitic, S-I-N-A-I-T-I-C, simply means the covenant given at Mount Sinai. The answer is clearly no. The priest of another kind, as prefigured in Melchizedek of Genesis fame, must then be a priest who doesn't supplant, per se, the Levitical priesthood or deny the significance of such a priesthood, but it simply declares that another kind of priest was predicted by the Holy Spirit through David, who is also of the Davidic line, the royal tribe of Judah, and not of the Levitical priestly line, according to the tribe or connected to the tribe of Levi to which Aaron, the archpriest, belonged, as did Moses, his brother, for that matter. So not every person in Levi's line acts as a priest or is called to be a priest because Moses came from that line because Moses is Aaron's brother. So Moses could have been a priest and, in fact, did function as a priest once or twice. But let's say this again now. This priest arose from David's line. Why? Because David wrote Psalm 110. And David speaks of his descendant being the one to whom God says, Sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footrest for your feet. Psalm 110.1. David is, is said, he opens up by saying, The Lord said to my Lord. Meaning Yahweh said to my descendant who will also be my Lord. That's the Messiah King. 
Sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footrest for your feet. To this same one, a descendant of David of the royal tribe of Judah, he said, you are a priest. So why would God say, after the Levitical order, after the law, in the Psalms written by David, that there's another priest going to arise, resurrection implication, who is of not the Levitical tribe, not the tribe of Levi at all. So if God did all that he needed to do in the Levitical priesthood and through the Levitical priesthood, then why was there the call for another priest to arise after the order of, or literally prefigured in Melchizedek? The suggestion of this other priest arising as prefigured in Melchizedek, who appeared again, and I'm making this point, in Genesis before Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that evidently transcends and therefore supersedes the Levitical priesthood who will have fulfilled their typological significance. This isn't saying that there was no significance to the Levites or the Levitical priesthood. It had a typological significance that is extremely important. Seventh thing then, it was evident when Hebrews was published and sent to its first intended audience that Jesus arose from the tribe of Judah and that he was the descendant of David. But be apart from Jesus' non-priestly genealogy, consider Psalm 110 again, or 109, in the Septuagint. It reveals, Psalm 110.1 reveals that God is speaking of one whom David calls my Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I place your enemies as a footrest for your feet. Then in verse 2, and this has hardly ever been done, but I'm doing it in Psalm 110.2, the Lord continues speaking to this one. And so I'm going outside of the purview of Hebrews a little bit, but not really, because Psalm 110 in its totality has to be considered. In verse 2 of Psalm 110, the Lord continues speaking to this one whom David calls my Lord. And he says, send forth the scepter. That's your ruling power, the scepter of your power. That word scepter is also used in Hebrews 1, 8, and 9. God said to the same person, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of your righteousness. And he talks about the scepter from Psalm 45.7 or Septuagint 44.7. So let's back up slightly. Psalm 110.2, Septuagint 109.2, the Lord continues speaking to this one whom David calls my Lord. And he says, send forth the scepter of your power from Zion. That means let your power extend beyond Israel and beyond Mount Zion. And that therefore means let your scepter extend from Zion outward. The scepter of his power actually being the Holy Spirit who is sent into all the world. Sent forth. And the same verb is used, and you'll see it in print, ex apostello, 
in Galatians 6, 4, the, for the sending forth of the Holy Spirit. So I would translate this almost as extend the horizon of your power universally. Why? Because Isaiah 9, 7 speaks of the child who was given to us and the son given to us by God as having a kingdom and a dominion, the increase of which has no end, meaning he has a universal dominion. Once again, then, the significance of Psalm 110.2. Send forth the scepter of your power from Zion outward. And then he says this even more significantly. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Rule in the midst of your enemies. He says that to Jesus, his son. You know what else he says? Who else he says it to? You. We reign with him. We rule with him through the abundance of grace that he gives. Rule in the midst of your enemies means rule even while the evil age rages and your enemies are still active. And that means that our great king rules now. And that in the end, Tatelos, he will hand over the kingdom over which he rules to the Father. And it's at that moment, at the furthest bound of history, as Bulgakov calls it, it is then, at that moment, that God will be all in all. And that ends what Sergius Bulgakov rightly called the micro-apocalypse of 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28. If ever there's a little passage of scripture you need to be associated with and understand and memorize and study, it's 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28, because that's the furthest bound of history and eschatology. That's the verse that a lot of the patristic theologians were all about and rightly so, from Origen to Gregory of Nyssa, all the way to John Duns Scotus and others. Now, rule in the midst of your enemies means that Jesus isn't waiting to rule. He's ruling now. He's not waiting to reign. He's reigning now. Kings and presidents and senators and congressmen and congresswomen are accountable to our great king right now, as each and every one of us is. You know, we're even accountable for our words, which is going to come up in our Martin Luther King Day ser service and study. Kings and presidents and senators and congressmen and women are accountable to our great king now and will be as each and every one of us is believers and unbelievers she in china is accountable to him putin is accountable to him president biden and vice president harris are accountable to our great king nancy pelosi and Chuck Schumer are accountable to him. Mitch McConnell is accountable to him. 
I am accountable to him, and so are you. Jesus is not waiting to reign. He is reigning now. So get woke to that. Or stay asleep in your own separate reality, which is a fantasy world. Now, Psalm 110.1, Septuagint 109.1, speaks of one whom David calls my Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord. That reminds me of Psalm 45.7, God said to my God. God said, your throne, O God. Sit at my right hand until... I make your enemies a footrest for your nail-scarred, we could add, feet. With the New Testament insight, we could rightly add that. Then in verse 2, the Lord continues speaking to this same one saying, send forth the scepter. I'm repeating this because of its tremendous importance. Send forth the scepter of your power from Zion, meaning from Zion outward the scepter of his power again being the same as the Holy Spirit whom Jesus sends and the Father also sends in other words extend the horizon of your power universally and we could even say until the last enemy is annihilated that enemy being Thanatos or death Extend the horizon of your power universally, says God the Father to his Son. As soon as his Son was seated, he said that. And that's also in connection with Isaiah 9, 7, that his power, that his dominion has no end. Then he says, rule in the midst of your enemies. I can't emphasize the significance of this enough. There should be another document like Hebrews written about Psalm 110 too. We could do that. Maybe that would be a fun study. Again, then, rule in the midst of your enemies means rule even while the evil age rages and your enemies are still active and all of the flailing about of the powers of this age are swinging their swords everywhere and carrying around a buzzsaw that they're buzzing everybody with. That means that our great king rules now and not that only in the end will he hand over the kingdom over which he rules to the Father at which moment the, that death itself, the last enemy, will pass away. And that's the word used for it. Katergeo means pass away. We've all had to say with broken hearts, someone we loved has passed away. But we're all going to say with happy hearts, death has passed away. We're all going to say that. And when death passes away, you know what he has to do? Cough up everything he's ever claimed. From people to pets. So, that's going to be a happy day. Oh, happy day. I think that's a song. Oh, happy day. Yes, it is. Edwin Hawkins Singers, I think, sang it. So, In the end, he will hand over the kingdom over which he's presently ruling to the Father, at which moment death, the last enemy, will pass away. And the living God, 
whose essence is love, will be all in all. As the micro-apocalypse of 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28 discloses, which we will speak about a little more in our next message, which will not be an increment of Hebrews, but a special message on Martin Luther King Day. Right now, and throughout 22 and beyond, Jesus Christ reigns in the midst of his enemies. He who reigns in the midst of his enemies is our great shepherd, who also, listen carefully, prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. You're going to have to live out your Christian life in this world in the presence of your enemies. So instead of cowering in the presence of your enemies, live out your Christian life in the presence of your enemies. He's prepared a table for you. And a big part of that table is a cornucopia of insights from his word that he's prepared to sustain us in our time. And he's doing that right now and has been. Psalm 23.5. Let me repeat that again. Right now and throughout 2022 and beyond, Jesus Christ reigns in the midst of his enemies. And he who reigns in the midst of his enemies is none other than our great shepherd, who also prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies in Psalm 23.5. Part of what's laid out, if not a large part of what's laid out on that table, is a cornucopia of insights from his word that he has prepared to sustain us in this time so we don't cower under the table we sit at the table and we eat in the presence of our accusing slandering threatening intimidating enemies whom we are not intimidated about at all and the bigger they are the harder they fall if you don't believe that ask Goliath the Septuagint of Psalm 109.3 or Psalm 110.3 in the English translation goes on to say, with you is a rule on the day of your power among the brilliant splendor of your holy ones. From the womb before morning star, I brought you forth. This shows the superiority of Jesus Christ over Lucifer, the son of the morning, Jesus Christ himself is the morning star, as Revelation 22.16 says, and he gives the morning star to the overcomers, according to Revelation 2.28. In fact, another translation of Psalm 109.3 or 110.3, another translation says, your people will volunteer in the day of your power meaning that we who understand and we who believe in him present our bodies as a living sacrifice to him and we get into the battle. Voluntary, we volunteer. It's a volunteer army. Then the Lord says, and we'll close with this, in 109.4, English text 110.4, I've sworn an oath and will never take it back. You are a priest forever, as prefigured in Melchizedek. That comes forth as a shocking surprise when you read it in its context. Because he's speaking to the same one who is the royal messianic king, now called a priest forever. 
Now, some people translate that, that as a priest for the age, which again begs the question, if he's a priest for the age, does that mean that he is, as he is a king until he's done ruling and gives his kingdom over to the father, is he a priest only till that moment? And when he gives his kingdom to the father, does he cease being the king and does he cease being the priest? Well, that's a question. Does his kingdom end and does it get engulfed in and swallowed up by the kingdom of the father? Well, I'll say this much. If it does, then it's still the kingdom of the son in the father and the father in the son. That's the whole point of the Trinitarian doctrine of the scriptures. You are a priest forever as prefigured in Melchizedek. Now, I'm saying this facetiously, but this might sound familiar to you. This acclamation of priest forever as prefigured in Melchizedek is made by Yahweh, God the Father, to the same one whom David the king called my Lord, and therefore he must be a king of kings, and to whom God the Father had also said, sit at my right hand. Hand. Go back to Hebrews 1 3, 1 13. Go forward to Hebrews 8, 1 2, 10, 12 to 13, and 12 2, and you'll see references to him sitting at the Father's right hand. This currently reigning King of all kings and Lord of all lords, even the lords of England's parliament, is also this other kind of priest who was prefigured in Melchizedek who appeared in scripture once in Genesis before the Levitical priesthood was instituted in Exodus and once in the Psalms in which this priest is shown to arise after the institution of the Levitical priesthood. Jesus is this priest who both preceded and continued to exist after the Levitical priesthood became passé. Jesus, the first and the last, the one who truly had no beginning of days and who, having died, lives now to die no more. And he lives to make intercession for us to save us to the point of conformity into his image. So eighth, and finally, finally, the second major thing that the teaching pastor does in Hebrews 7, 11 to 12 is introduce, and he does this brilliantly, and only the Holy Spirit could give him this kind of genius, to introduce the connection of the Levitical priesthood to the law under which it was instituted. This, in turn, prepares the way to show that the need for a different kind of priest is linked to the need for something to come after the law and the Sinaitic Covenant, which by their very nature were intended to be evanescent, transient. Otherwise, why would God not only speak of the need for a different kind of priest whose ministry would be forever, and a different kind of covenant which is called better, Hebrews 7.22 and 8.6, new, Hebrews 8.8, 8, 8.13 and 12.24, and everlasting, Hebrews 13.20. Thank you, Father, for these eight insights. We ask that you'll drill them into our hearts and that you will 
allow us once again to see ever more clearly Jesus, our great archpriest, as prefigured in Melchizedek. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.